Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Paul McGann, and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the seemingly infinite task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. And at this point, it really does feel seemingly infinite because my god, it never ends. (laughs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have an infinite four-person discussion. See, it doesn't work for that one. Including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. There's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast our good friend, formerly of the Talking Who to You podcast and now the Talking Trek to You podcast, J.G. McQuarrie. Hello, J.G. Hello. And J.G. requested this one. Oh, yes. For some reason. Yeah, no, there's a very good reason, which is that I love pain and misery. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder you've been with us for the last couple of months. Okay, that makes sense. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, we receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book since we know you have so many of them. You store them in an old pumping station in Amsterdam guarded by a giant skeletal chicken (laughs) just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, Louise De- Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Wow. What a I did it. You did I it. I did it in one breath, except oh. I unfortunately tripped on Louise's name. Sorry about that, Louise. But you still did it. 
I still did it because I was ready for it this time. I was like, I'm going to do it. Damn it. Some good is going to come out of this particular episode. My God. <laughs> we also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss or bitch about upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We begin our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor and the 20th season of the show itself as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of Arc of Infinity. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Arc of Infinity, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Johnny Byrne that aired from 1383 to 1283, published by Target Books in July 1983. As of this recording in May 2023, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 117 pages. Which is about 116 pages too long. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I need to stop that. Uh, Johnny Byrne last wrote a script for the show when he did The Keeper of Trocken for which he created Nyssa, which is one of the reasons why she's suddenly back to packing heat again. This happened because, as Shannon Patrick Sullivan's website tells us, Eric Sayward admired that story and invited Byrne to do a new script, entirely unaware of how much of that script was actually Christopher H. Bidmead's work because of extensive rewrites because we assumed that had he known, he'd never have done it. Owing to various different factors, including John Nathan Turner's insistence on having Amsterdam in the story, because he probably wanted a vacation there, his desire to have an old enemy added to the story against Byrne's wishes, the similarities between Byrne's original script and the one that would follow it, uh, i.e. Steak Dance, this story went through at least three complete rewrites before being filmed. And even then... It was not up to snuff for the production team because the Amsterdam location was still an afterthought in the finished story. So that part of the story was considered a disappointment. Speaking of disappointments, there's the Ergon. In the book, Dix manages to make the creature just the tiniest bit menacing because he describes it as lizard-like and at another point he describes it another way. And that was the intention with the design of the costume. It was meant to invoke a pile of bones, similar to the one the crew of the Nostromo found in the movie Alien, which is why the final costume also includes a pterodactyl skull. Unfortunately, the final effect is that of a very spindly chicken monster. <laughs> and even the production team considered it to be an utter failure. And oh my God, it a is. A chicken bone monster or the full chicken? Chicken bone monster. Yeah, if you do a Google search for Doctor Who Ergon, E-R-G-O-N, you'll see it in all its, um, well, you can't really call it glory, can you? There are some great cast members in this one, despite the dire script, including Leonard Sachs as Barusa, Paul Jericho as the Castellan, and two extremely well-known actors as Hedden and Maxwell. Hedden's played by Michael Guff. I think that's how it's pronounced. I had this problem the last time he was on the show, who had played the Celestial Toymaker back in the 1960s, and whom American audiences know best as Alfred in the 1990 Batman movies, not to mention being the ex-husband of Annika Wills, who played Polly alongside Hartnell and Troughton. Maxwell was played by Colin Baker, who was given a helmet with an ostrich plume on it that he nicknamed Esmeralda. <laughs> which he then carried under his arm because he couldn't clear doors when he had it on his head. 
Oh, God. Baker's biggest regret about taking this role is that he was a longtime fan of the show, and he thought that because he had done a guest role on it, that meant he would never be able to play the Doctor. <clears throat> oh. Yeah. Turns out he was right, and he never appeared on the show again, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. All right, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Uh, JG, would you be willing to do the honors again for us, please? I'd be willing to try, although, you know, it's, it's Arc of Infinity. Drama might be, a, might be a hard reach, but I'll do my best. That's all I can promise. <laughs> all right. <laughs> when the Doctor returns to Gallifrey, he learns that his biodata extract has been stolen from the Time Lord's master computer, known as the Matrix. The biodata extract is a detailed description of the Doctor's molecular structure, and this information, in the wrong hands, could be exploited with disastrous effect. No kidding. The Gallifreyan High Council believe that antimatter will be infiltrated into the universe as a result of this theft. In order to render this information useless, they declare that the Doctor must die. Wow. <laughs> Even the grammar of that particular description is shite. Mm. Oh my god. Uh, antimatter will be infiltrated into the... Oh god. Yeah, let's not get me started. Dalton, first impression <laughs> when you got this book, what were you thinking? Well, the covers, guns, guns, more guns. Oh my god, Doctor Who with guns. <laughs> why? 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 Um, and then reading the back cover... Of course, of course, the, the Time Lords want to kill the Doctor, because it seems like every time he shows up on Gallifrey, they want to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, okay, this is familiar, more of the same. All right, let's do this. Yeah. And then I read the book. <laughs> Sometimes there's a trial before they try to kill him. Well, that'll come next. Actually, that'll come in a couple of stories. Wait, no, not a couple of stories. Let's see. We've had at least two trials before. Well, there will be another one. In fact, there'll be a season-long one. Oh, God. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The Time Lords seem to be in this habit of trying to kill him every time he comes home. And no wonder he ran away. Yeah. But yeah. Allison, what was your first impression when you got this book? It looks like a snapshot of a very awkward fan meeting Peter Davison at a convention. <laughs> trying to interact with him and relate to him, but... He doesn't quite know what to do, so he just points his prop gun at Peter Davison, and he's who's trying to be nice about it. Who's used to these kinds of encounters? It's yeah. very orange and yellow. I had to put on some shades. It is the ugliest fucking cover, isn't it? Oh my god. I mean, all of the photo covers are to some degree or another kind of awful and glaring, but this one, I, I don't know what they were thinking with that background. It's just, yeah. JG, I think... You and I both saw this when it first went out, though you would have seen it significantly before I did when it first went out. What was your uh, first impression of it? Um, so I, it's so cheap to just take a shot at the Ergon, but it's impossible not to. I was not <laughs> the most critically adept teenager in the world, and even I watched this and went, oh, for God's sake. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's Ark of Infinity. Like... I think I mentioned in the last episode, like, I'm a big fan of the redemptive reading. I want to be able to find like little gobbets of quality or something that you can pull out in this. And like you mentioned, I volunteered for this because I am a fucking idiot. But also, I used to live in Amsterdam. That's the, that's the best 
like thing I have to say. Oh. So I lived in Amsterdam for 13 years. <laughs> and the the final shot of uh, in episode four of the bridge that Omega is on, there's a shot of the apartment mm-hmm. that I used to live in, the first apartment I ever lived in in Amsterdam. It can be ah. seen from that. The, the, the skinny bridge is in the background and it's on the River Amstel. And that's it. That's kind of, that's, that's the best I could do to try and justify my desire, and desire is definitely not the right word, to cover this story. Um, but even <laughs> even back in the 1980s, like, you know, eyes were eyes were rolling and brains were seen. It's It was so bad when it went out. And this was the big comeback. Like, Tegan is back, and yeah. you know, we're getting back into the swing of things. This was meant to be, like, the big, exciting adventure. And episode one is pretty decent. And then nothing else is. that that is very much true um were you ever in the location with the phone booth where apparently you can see john nathan turner in the background of the shot trying to do crowd control yeah, all of that stuff is within about like three minutes walk of each other, of each other, or or maybe a minute and a half on on, on a bicycle. I have to be honest with you. I'm drinking quite heavily to get through this episode. Like I know you guys are in in America, and um, it's it's morning over there. It's evening over here, and uh, in Bonnie Scotland, and. Just the idea of having to talk about Ark of Infinity for an hour is enough to make anybody reach for the bottle. But yes, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> that, like all, all of those locations are all like, like if you just like got off a train in the middle of Amsterdam, you go, oh yeah, there, 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 and there. Assuming you avoid all the sex shops and 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 you know red light windows. Yeah, it's it's like the most obvious bits of the city that you could possibly have. It's it's very conspicuous. And speaking of avoiding the red light district, apparently the production team didn't. They accidentally walked into the red light district uh, one night when they were not shooting. An accident indeed. And Janet Fielding was mistaken for a prostitute. Oh, God. (laughs) Hopefully she wasn't in costume because, yeah, that, that new costume of hers probably would make anyone think that. But, yeah, that's... One of the more fun stories. I have to admit, I don't think I ever read this book before this podcast. That's going to be true of several in the Davison run, to be honest. And I wasn't looking forward to this for the same reasons as JG, though I did go into it with an open mind or tried to, thinking, well, Terrence Dix is the one who was the script editor responsible for the three doctors. So he will have had some familiarity with Omega. So we're going to get at least that. But mm, goodness, where do we start with this? What did we Mm. like about it, if anything? I like that Tegan's back. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's about e- it. <laughs> yeah, but that's hardly a surprise, is it? No, not yeah, not since we talked about it last time. But yeah, I wasn't sure that she would be back so soon, but when we find out that there's an Australian person in Amsterdam, I was like, okay, that's the cousin on the phone. That's Tegan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. There had to be another Australian somehow. They're kind of like magnets, aren't they? They mm-hmm. kind of attract each other. If you've got one Australian in the cast, you know that Tegan's going to be around somewhere. And I'd wondered if he was Auntie Vanessa's son. Oh. Ah, uh, Tegan's family is... <laughs> T- 
Tegan's family is weird. Let's just say that because we know from the books that apparently the dad is back in Australia. I don't know if he's still alive. The grandfather li- on one side or the other lives in England. I think it may be the maternal grandfather because his last name is different, but I, I really don't know how that works. And then you've got Auntie Vanessa and we don't know whose sister she is. And then you have Colin. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know that anyone's actually done a family tree of Tegan's family. I don't know if you could really mm-hmm. with the given information and whether if you put Auntie Vanessa on it, it would be a bonsai tree branch because she's tiny. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Unlike JG, I'm not tricking, but I should be. <laughs> Well, well, I was just... We all have our own ways of coping. It is noon on a Sunday. Mimosas would be acceptable, Mm -hmm. Oh, God, I wish. I wish. I just had the thought that, oh, God, is is Tegan going to lose another family member? And is it possible that this family member is in direct relation to the aunt that she's already lost? Oh, God, wouldn't that have been awful? (laughs) I was like... Are they really going to do this? But no, he he's okay. He he made it through. Yeah, luckily the only people who die in this story are Time Lords, which of course brings up one of my biggest problems with the story, but we'll 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 get there, obviously. I would like to add just before we move on from the the discussion about Tegan's family. Mm-hmm. Tegan has a family. Yes. That is unique in Doctor Who up to this point. Like, like we've had, Sarah's had a job and we've had Ian and Barbara and they've had their jobs or whatever. But Tegan has a family and a background and a history and no other character up to this point has been afforded that level of verisimilitude. It's one of the reasons I absolutely love Tegan as a character. I don't necessarily think that it comes through in the best way when it comes to this book. <laughs> Wonder why. But it's... <laughs> It's just lovely that there is a character at this point in Doctor Who who like has a genuine like a family and a job and a whole world that exists out with the TARDIS because that isn't something that ever really happens. I, you could like point to the Brigadier's military career or something like that, but it's it's all a bit vague. It's all a bit story specific. But Tegan has a real sense of time and place and family and and an anchor in Earth. And I just I don't want that to be glossed over because I think it's a really really important development for Doctor Who as a series that we start to get this much more kind of naturalistic engagement. It won't necessarily last. Hello, Mel. (laughs) It's good that it's there to begin with, and it will come back, obviously, in such a big way when we get to Ace. So I I just, just really want to acknowledge that. Yeah, I agree. And you're right. The only character who's come even close to that was Sarah Jane in having Aunt Lavinia, who somehow went from microbiology to anthropology. But yeah, there's a family there and her cousin, but it doesn't come close to what Tegan gets. And you're right. It reminds me very much of Rose later and then Martha and the other characters in the new series that we always get this cast of characters that comes with them unless they are so high concept. And I'm looking specifically at Jenna Coleman's character that What little family they do have gets pushed off to the side and is, as you said, is story specific. But here you're right. But it doesn't work out too well. (laughs) It really doesn't. (laughs) 
Well, theory and practice are not necessarily a perfect blend in this story. I think that's a fair observation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say so, too. Uh, Other things we liked? I would absolutely read another one of Colin and Robin backpacking around Europe. (laughs) Yes. Being lightly robbed, losing things, (laughs) saying, you want to sleep where? I I thought everything was Colin and it was delightful. Yeah, you actually get a sense of the Doctor Who universe being lived in, because usually when we get characters like this coming in from outside, they come to really bad ends. I'm thinking specifically about the campers in Stones of Blood. Mm. Whenever we see people who just kind of wander into the plot, they're there for cannon fodder. And That's what they get for going camping in Stones of Blood National Park. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You would think they would know better. But no, Don't Feed the Stones is right there posted on every tree. But there you are. <laughs> but yeah, it, here you you think that these two are going to be the, the first victims. And in a sense, they are, but they don't end up dying. This is who I would be in the Doctor Who universe. Oh, is it? Not a hero, not a companion, but someone say, look, I know we don't have a lot of money, but you want to sleep in the crypt under the pumping station? (laughs) The pumping station in Amsterdam means something very different. Mm. Oh. Speaking of red light districts. (laughs) Oh, whoops. Okay. I actually thought at the end when Omega was, you know, I thought it was going to come to a tragic end, but then it turned out to be slapstick about a tourist discovering the pleasures of flesh in Amsterdam. I really did think that Omega was going to run into the red light district or run through it <laughs> as he was doing his quick tour oh, uh, and, you know, discovering street organs and lifting bridges and whatnot. Street organs, indeed, yeah. Mm, yeah. It, yes. This body's falling apart. <laughs> yeah, if he'd gone into the red light district, there definitely would have been an explosion, just not an antimatter one. But I did actually think that there would maybe be a shot where he was gawking at a window and you don't see what's in the window. You just see his reaction to it. But they didn't quite go there. We get something kind of like that in The Two Doctors, but that's further along. And it's, I have to say, I I know that I've started off slamming the story immediately, but one of the things that I do love about the televised story, and Dix kind of manages to capture it on the page a bit better, is when Omega is in his copy of the Doctor's body and roaming around Amsterdam and is just marveling at being matter again. And being able to see Earth and being able to see all these beauties and wonders that he hadn't seen before. Of course, it gets curtailed completely when he decides, oh, I'm going to blow the shit out of it because I can't be part of it. But Davison plays those moments on screen beautifully. You really get a sense of how good an actor Peter Davison is whenever he has to do something that is outside of the normal wheelhouse of playing the Doctor. That being said, whether it carries to the rest of the book... I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it doesn't. Um, <laughs> just, I, just, I, I, again, I don't want to sound too judgmental, but it's very hard to be anything else. You're completely right about um, Peter Davison in, the, in episode four. Like He gives a lovely performance as Omega, but it's so flat on the page. And like, I was really... Yeah. Well, I know I, I suffered for my art in the last episode and I, I got through Time Flight and I did my best. I really tried my best for you. And so I was like, it's not often you think, oh, good, turn sticks. But I was thinking, oh, good, turn sticks. 
And then yes. maybe you guys can help me with this because I really got the impression reading this book that Terence Dick had kind of contempt for this story. I'm sure he like, does. Like it, it feels to me like it radiates off the page. Like he doesn't make a lot of effort to kind of give it a bit of lift or give it a bit of spark to it. It's very like funnily enough, the character that comes off best in the book I think is actually Maxwell because yes. he's able to invest like a sense of contempt and that that kind of sneering performance that 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 Colin Baker gives but for the rest of it he just doesn't really seem to care all that much and I don't get the impression that Terence Dix really liked this story and that's kind of unusual because I think a lot of you guys are the experts much more than me but when you get a Terence Dix book where he just phones it in it's normally like fine it's okay but yeah. There's something about the way he writes this that I just think kind of has contempt for this story. I, I mean, I can't imagine why, but it really is my feeling on it. I think so, too. And in fact, the only part of it where I felt any sort of that old Dixian spark is in Chapter 9, when he's describing the Doctor's reaction to finding out it's Omega. And when he gives us Omega's backstory, which is actually more than the televised story does. And I think that's kind of criminal of the televised story because this was 1983. Omega hadn't appeared since, what, 1973? Mm -hmm. And no one will have seen that in reruns. The book is available. It's written by Terrence Dix. So, of course, you know, I was half expecting to see one of those asterisks and see Doctor Who and the Three Doctors <laughs> written by Terrence Dix at booksellers near you. But he does give us a rundown of it, but the televised story doesn't. I thought it was adequately explained in the novelization. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's it is adequately explained in the novelization. The televised story does not do that. The televised story simply says, oh, it's Omega, and you're meant to say, okay, who is this again? When I first saw this story, probably around 1984, I didn't know who Omega was because I hadn't seen The Three Doctors yet, and I hadn't read The Three Doctors yet, so this could have been anybody. I had no idea who it was. And I can imagine that there were plenty of people watching this for the first time around age 13 or whatever who probably were like, what? I don't know who that is. Whereas in the book, at least, Terrence Dix does his due diligence to give us that backstory. That being said, I think J.J. Wright, he couldn't give fewer shits about mm. expanding on the story. It doesn't really have any sort of spark to it that normally comes from a Dixian novelization, you're right. The way that they try to make Omega this huge part of Doctor Who, like he's shown up the way the Master has. Like they expect yeah. you to care about this character that literally was in one story 10 years before. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, wait, who is this? Why am I supposed to care about this person? I don't remember anything about him. The fact that he brought time travel to the Time Lords, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and even in the well, book, like, why? Mm -hmm. Why am I supposed to care? <laughs> Hedden kind of tries to explain that and says, this is why I'm doing it, because we wouldn't be here as Time Lords if it weren't for him. But that could have been expanded upon. It could have been a little stronger than it was. And I don't think that there's any surprise at all in the book, even, that Hedden is the one who is the betrayer of Gallifrey at this point. For, because on screen, you know exactly who it is as soon as you see that Michael Guff is in the uh, cast list. And the book, the cover of the book, tells you exactly who it is. 
You can see it because that's Michael Guff on the cover holding a gun at the doctor's head. Yeah, but if you've never seen this, the televised, I didn't know who it was. Okay, good. good. <laughs> I had, I, and honestly, I think that Terrence Dix did a good job of throwing red herrings in there uh, for a good bit of the book. I was totally all in that. It was the president, yes, because of course oh, it's good. the president. I, I think the red herrings worked. Okay. And I assumed the whole time it was the master. That too, yes. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it, it couldn't be the master because we've had him pretty recently, though. It, it, it can, can always be the master. We, we've had the master inappropriately before. And, and we will again. Oh, look, he's not dead. Oh, God, will we ever. It just made me think of uh, Deadly Assassin, because with The Matrix showing back up, you know, I was like, oh, God, here we are again. Like, yes, it's of course it's the master. (laughs) Of course it's the master, because why would it not be the master? Yeah. And they tried to go a different direction with it, but it's still shoehorning Omega back into this thing and being like, he is a great time lord. And he did. It's like, well. Oh, okay. Like, where has he been this whole 10 years since the last time you talked about him? Yes. <laughs> Going crazy. Yeah. Going more crazy, yeah. Yeah, and how did he get hold of a TARDIS? Right. And how did they manage to get a TARDIS into the antimatter universe where supposedly he survived because, again, somehow Palpatine survived? <sighs> but again, this is this is something that would have been really easy if Terence Dix was engaged for him to fix. There's a couple of things here which Terence Dix visibly fixes from the televised version. Like it would have taken like literally like two sentences to say, and thank you, Hedden, for sending me this TARDIS. Now I have a way to reach Earth and and yeah. be below <laughs> sea yeah. level or something, whatever. You're like that's that's literally all it would take. And like the things that he was able to fix is like the way that Colin is just like, oh, and he's been sent to hospital. Like we don't get that in the TV show. Like he's just gone. We just never see him again. That's fine. Mm-hmm. It's not a great loss to drama. But nevertheless, like, Terrence Dix chooses to fix that. Like, Tegan is given a line. Oh, well, they've gone to hospital or whatever. Fine. Their story's concluded. And it would have been ex- so easy for him to do the same with these little shortfalls when it comes to Omega. And he just doesn't bother. And that's, Mm-mm. I think that absence is really telling. And that's one of the reasons, I, I like I said earlier, that I feel he kind of has a bit of contempt for this script. Like, it, that's the, the minimum level of kind of like, but you're writing a novelization, fix this. And he just doesn't bother. And it's not like somebody of Terrence Sticks' caliber to just gloss over stuff like that. I'm glad you mentioned Colin and that whole business with him going to hospital because having rewatched the story recently, unfortunately, Tegan does have a line at the very end of the story where she says he's been released from hospital, but you're right. We get a line where he's being sent to hospital because apparently he suffered very badly. He also fixes the one Colin-related bit that I detest in this story, that after Omega has escaped, there's been the explosion. He's uh, the doctor and this are trying to find the parts of the gun to put it back together. And the doctor calls out to Tegan and says, help me find these parts. She comes to the door and says, I must help Colin. Doctor, quickly! I must find the matter converter. I can't destroy Omega without it. Tegan, help me! I must help Colin. And then she goes back, back into the room where Colin is. It's like... Why? What do? Why do you have to be in there with Colin when this is much more pressing? It's the stupidest beat 
in a stupid story, which is saying something. I need to stand beside him. (laughs) Yes, it's got that feel to it. And it's like, you can tell Janet Fielding is trying to invest it with some sort of sense, and it doesn't have any sense to invest in it. Dix chops it out. So there is that. But you're right. It's little fixes, but not the big fixes that the story desperately needs. Such as making Gallifrey interesting. This is probably the least interesting that Gallifrey ever is in the classic series. Uh, JG, how do you feel about that? Um, I agree, but there's also something slightly heartening about getting to Gallifrey in this point, which is this is the second last time we will ever have to go near this fucking planet again. Um, like we get it in the five doctors and that's it trial of the time lord doesn't count that's a space station that could be anywhere um and i am so glad to be done with gallifrey i do not care about gallifrey i am not interested in gallifrey i wish the new series had never brought gallifrey back i am dreading Mm. what might happen in the 60th anniversary and down the line if russell t davis like goes full gallifrey again i just don't there's nothing interesting about this planet and so the idea like uh, this story has been very heavily criticized in terms of the tv episodes for the fact that gallifrey has been reduced to some like cream sofas and and you know it's like 1980s chrome but honestly (laughs) that was where it was always heading there was never like with the maybe exception of the final episode of the war games there was never a version of gallifrey that wasn't going to look like a naff 1980s like chat show set that's what it's always been. That's what it will always be. I never, ever want to visit Gallifrey again. Um, so it's not that I have strong feelings on the subject, but you know, that. Yeah. Hard to follow that up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Man, I had such low expectations for this. I didn't suffer as badly as the three of you did. <laughs> I was excited we were going to see Lua, and then we didn't. Yeah, um, God. Yeah. I don't have strong feelings for or against Gallifrey. Uh, the entire book, the only parts that I will retain later are the parts in Amsterdam, which I thought were funny. Gallifrey will just slip out of my mind like Olio out the air. As it should. Apparently, they did try to get Louise Jameson back for this story. She wasn't available. But if Leela had been in it, I have a feeling that she would have been the one holding the High Council at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. And trying to force the doctor to be freed because that really tracks more like a Leela moment than a Nissa moment. That being said, it is Johnny Byrne writing Nissa, and as I said, when he writes Nissa, she's a pistol pack and mama for some reason. I thought it worked because it felt so out of character. Mm, really? That Nissa does not go around pulling weapons on people and is a more subdued and cerebral character. So I thought it worked as a, a sort of an arresting moment mm. for an act of desperation. Certain values of arresting. Yeah. She's not given to those. You're absolutely right. That now that Tegan is mostly out of the picture for this story, Nissa at least could come to the forefront a little bit and be slightly less useless than she normally is. Remember, I didn't know Tegan was gone. The last story that I read, Adric left. Right. So I was actually thinking, where's Tegan? I guess Tegan left, and then Tegan came back about the time I figured out that she'd left. So it was interesting that it's the only one that I've read where Nissa's the only companion. So she does have a little bit more of an opportunity to be developed. Uh, I'm not saying it's an opportunity anyone took. I'm just saying it's an opportunity that was there. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it's not an opportunity that just about anybody's going to take. Even in her last story, you're not going to get that sort of opportunity, which is a shame. We talked last time about how, in many ways, Nissa in the classic series is entirely useless. And it's only the audios that have really rehabilitated her. It is nice to see her be a little bit less twee here, though. Like the early scenes where she's in the TARDIS and she's kind of gently persuading bullying however you want to put it like the doctor to do his repairs and and like just like yes. doctor could you just get on and fix this shit already and it's like that, that's that, like, that's a nice character but like i maintain the first episode and so the first four chapters of this book uh, i think there's some nice material in there and like the idea of, of of nissa just kind of like okay come on look look you, you need a bit of a an authority figure in your life just to persuade you to like get out of bed in the morning so come on <laughs> fix the scanner for christ's sake it's easy get on with it right fine okay you've done that well there are other things that need to be fixed doctor like, i like that characterization of her i wish she'd been given a bit more of that during the series but at least the little hints that we get here sort of when when she is out of character and like packing heat at least the hints that we've got like that she might actually have some kind of personality early on in the episode suggests that the you know that stuff comes from somewhere rather than just being delivered out of nowhere yeah mm. and i think a lot of it comes from tegan's absence to be honest mm. because mm-hmm. tegan would be the one doing those things and bullying the doctor and bitching at him about fixing bits of the tardis if that was actually a priority for her but because tegan is such a mighty big presence Nissa doesn't really assert herself until tegan's gone so i would have personally loved to have had maybe two or three stories with Nissa just as the primary companion in the original series because when that happens on audio it's marvelous it really is but you just don't get it in the original series at all I mean it's amusing to have a doctor congratulating himself for doing maintenance he put off for a hundred years and Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's just evidence of his ADD Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, something's always coming up, and he's absolutely right, but then there's plenty of downtime. I will say, though, I think it is utterly, utterly a bad idea to call attention to the fact that Temporal Grace is not happening anymore, because who would have remembered it? <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> well, you see, ever since the Cybermen damaged oh, the concert. another thing. The TARDIS used to be in a state of Temporal Grace, you said. Guns couldn't be fired. Yes. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, only only Ian Levine would have remembered it. And of course, he's doing all the fan consultation things and probably said, oh, you missed this in Earthshock. We got to say something about it. I, I don't know why I make him sound like that. He sounds like the character from uh, American Dad. But um, <laughs> you got to say something about this. You didn't say that Temporal Grace was still in the TARDIS. It's like, oh, for Christ's sake. Do we have to? Temporal Grace is on vacation. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) She's had enough of this shit. She's out. (laughs) It has failed to grace us with its presence. Yes! Exactly. Oh, very good. Okay, that's much better than anything I could have come up with. Oh, I miss wine. Yes, Temporal Grace is gone. and It's like, why even bring the fucking thing up? Uh, There's some circumstantial evidence of time travel in here. In a Doctor Who story? uh, Yeah, yeah. Don't be so sure, said Tegan. It sounds exactly like the sort of thing my friend the Doctor used to get me involved in. The Doctor? Someone I used to know. 
Have you reported any of this to the police? And I think the song Somebody I Used to Know by the Police came out like five years after this or so. So, you know. Oh. <laughs> it was a pleasant mental soundtrack for the rest of the book. <laughs> we're, we're, we're digging hard to find good things about this book, aren't we? <laughs> I expected it to be so horrible that it was just just fine. Like I said, there were some funny moments. I loved Colin and uh, Robin and their very basic backpacker concerns in the midst of <laughs> maybe the world ending, but the passport's a bigger concern. It was relatable content. They're, they're definitely a couple, right? They're, they're, they're together. I think so. I think so. Even though having seen the story now, I think Colin could do better because Robin is... There's no place to put your eyes on that boy or to even listen to him because even the voice is annoying. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a marriage of convenience there. It definitely <laughs> is. That's one way to keep warm That's what in the backpacking crypts. is, is marriages of convenience. I guess so. <laughs> God. Yeah, I think they are together. It's interesting you mentioned the performances there because I do think it's one of the really big differences between the book and the TV show is that the way that a lot of the script lands on the page is flat. It's, it's yeah. very kind of uninvolving. It, it doesn't really garner a lot of interest. But there is something about the way that it's performed that gives a little bit more spark, a little bit of life to it. The, the scene that really stood out for me in that sense is that um, the doctor's trying to open the door with like the presidential codes or whatever, and he keys in this like massive long sequence of numbers, and then like Nissa and, and I think it's Damon answer it and say, oh, oh, doctor, how did you get through? And he just goes, pure luck. And on screen, <laughs> when you have like Davison delivering that line and he's got a smile, he gives a hand gesture, it's, it's incredibly charming. And here he yeah. just looks like a twat. Like just yeah. like just don't no don't do that, uh, and it's it's such a difference between the ways that something can be written and something can be performed, and and again unusually for Terrence Dix, he doesn't manage to get the charm of the delivery through. The Doctor just looks like he's an arrogant tit, uh, whereas on screen Peter <laughs> Davison is really charming, and like there aren't many things you can say to recommend. Arc of Infinity on screen, but Peter Davison's performance, both as the Doctor and eventually as as Omega, uh, as you mentioned, Tony, um, is one of them. He's really good at finding that little, those little moments where he can elevate what is clearly a diabolical script and and invest something yeah. in it. But having it on the page like that, what an idiot! Why would anybody want to spend time with this guy? That's a bit <laughs> of a barrier when you're trying to sell that as the lead character in your book. Yeah, and I have to admit, it's Ian Collier, isn't it, who plays Omega in this one? Yes, it is, yes. And he was previously in the Time Monster as Stuart. And he's really good. He's he's much better, in fact, I think, than the original Omega is, because the original Omega is, you know, blustering and shouting, oh, as that actor always is whenever he's on Doctor Who. Whereas Ian Collier at least tries to be menacing in a much quieter way. And when he is at the very end of the story, you see him in the Doctor's body, even though it's actually Ian Collier under the makeup at that point. It really sells it, and it's not sold on the page. You do not feel any sadness for Omega at all on the page. You don't even have any sort of 
a horrific response to the fact that the doctor has gunned him down at the very His end. His death is, is zany, not touching or sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it really should have been that. But it's like, oh, well, that's over with. We're not going to blow up. Hey, let's go pick up Tegan and we'll keep traveling. It's like, oh, for Christ's sake. But, you know, after he's, you know, supposed to be this powerful creature and he's, what is it, like ducking behind a barrel, huddling under the stairs, a dog barks at him. It's, yes. I mean, it is, it is funny. Uh, it's kind of wrong, kind of funny, but yeah. it's, it's, it's very anticlimactic relative to the great power he is supposed to hold. Yes. And to be fair, an antimatter explosion would not destroy the entire universe or even the entire planet. It would probably take out, well, Amsterdam. Which would be a terrible thing, but yeah, it would, it would take out Amsterdam. That's a bit undramatic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it would certainly be a thing. Terrible thing, but I mean, let's not push it. I will say this. There is one other thing for me personally to recommend the televised version of Ark of Infinity, and that is I have the biggest crush on Damon. <laughs> oh, my God. I seriously, of course, I kind of have a thing for IT guys anyway, and he's the head of the Gallifrey IT department, apparently. But <laughs> I, yeah, that's about the only thing. I, I could look at that man all day, but he's described as handsome on the page, and that's it. You have no idea what his history is with the doctor. That's something that Terrence Sticks would normally fill in. We have no idea how. Hedden knows the Doctor. That would have normally been filled in. None of it gets filled in. There's just no magic to this, and of course there isn't. He still gets a more detailed description than the, quote, large policeman, in quote, in Amsterdam. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there is that. True. Amsterdam, where apparently they measure the police by cubic volume. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have to admit, every time the Time Lord Zorax name came up, I couldn't help thinking about Space Goes Coast to Coast. Zorak, can you help me? Sure, kid. Just tell old Zorak. Now what's your problem? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> My misspent youth. Yes. There we go. What else do we want to say about this book if anything. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time. <laughs> um, I think the thing, I think it's a, a really important point that the whole crux of Omega's destruction in the in the in episode four stroke last few chapters is meant to be a tragedy. He's meant to be this fallen figure. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, fallen figures in Doctor Who, but this is one who's meant to be, for all his motivation, is is evil and bad, and the Doctor's going to be executed and blah, blah, blah. Like he's, There's a genuine degree of sympathy around the fate that has befallen this character. So this ending that he has, where he either chooses to be annihilated or sent back to this universe uh, of antimatter where he has like no meaningful corporeal form or you know whatever he's condemned to to a, an empty life everlasting it, that's meant to be a tragedy and it says something about everything around arc of infinity that it's just tragic it's so bad <laughs> 
is the last scene in Amsterdam played as like uh, a Benny Hill outtake like it is on the page? I mean, is it that slapstick? <laughs> no. it, it is only lacking yakety sax over the top of it to complete the image, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, a little bit of speeded up footage and a nurse, and a nurse in a skimpy costume. That's really the, all that's lacking. And even that would well, give I it guess a bit I'm, more I'm asking if this is Terrence Dix making fun of the scene or is it like that on, on screen? It, it's not like that on screen. You do get basically the most tepid chase music and it's just a chase essentially they have to show off as much of amsterdam as they possibly can because it doesn't appear much else in the rest of the story but yeah i think that's dick's trying to pare down that huge chase sequence on into prose and that's always difficult that's always been a difficulty for Doctor Who whenever you've had a chase sequence. It's always rough on the writers to try to reproduce that with any sort of tension. And here it doesn't come off as tension, obviously. It comes off slapstick, which is really unfortunate. But also, I mean, Terrence has been able to get some degree of drama into chases before. It's not that it's beyond his ability. I think it's just about beyond his ability to care. Because, yes. I mean, again, that, that episode in episode four of the TV show is, it's not exciting. You could never go that far. But there is a sense of, like, gathering momentum about it. There is a sense that it's it's driving towards this, this point, which is meant to be, you know, that, that crux, the drama of, of Omega's fate. Dix just doesn't seem to care. He can't invest mm-hmm. anything in it. And you're, of course, you're absolutely right. It's difficult to get a chase scene from, you know, some people run down a street which looks a bit like another street which looks like a bit like another street <laughs> you know until oh a bridge that's exciting um that is hard to capture in print but he's managed it before but there's just yeah. so little effort here i can't even find it in myself to blame dicks for that because you know it's Ark of infinity who gives a shit but but still it, you can't escape the feeling that it comes up short I agree. And and you're absolutely right. He has done it better before. Uh, Planet of the Spiders, for instance, has that lengthy sequence on screen that he kind of manages to rehabilitate a little bit on the page. This isn't rehabilitated simply because he doesn't want to. And who can blame him, really? The, the work is starting to dry up for the target books for him by this point. He's getting subpar scripts. He's having to adapt Johnny fucking Byrne for crying out loud. And he's having to adapt a story that is bringing back a villain who kind of had some punch before, but doesn't have much punch now. So, yeah, you could see why he's basically in it for the paycheck at this point. Can you explain what the Ark of Infinity is does no. purpose no. no i i searched through the pdf to reread the parts with the arc and all i could get was that it was somehow what amaga was using to get back to yeah. the sea level but a municipal pumping station but mm-hmm. also can access it like <laughs> talking about moving its access point to Gallifrey where the Matrix is located like what is all of this going to achieve (laughs) absolute fuck all (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah 
Um, I think that Johnny Byrne, as he often does in everything that I have read of his, everything that I've seen of his, I should say, because I've never read any of his prose. I imagine he does it there too. But if you look at his Space 1999 scripts, if you look at his Doctor Who scripts, he comes up with some sort of vast sounding phrase thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it has nothing behind it. It's just a name. It's just a slogan. Because if you try to look for what the Ark of Infinity actually is and what actual importance it has to the story, you come up with nothing because there's nothing there. It's treated like this vast thing that people talk of and odd voices. But there's nothing to talk about because there's literally nothing there. So yeah, uh, Dalton, I'm I'm sorry that you actually went to the trouble to try to find it <laughs> because it's nowhere in the it's nowhere in the book, it's nowhere in the TV series. Yeah, because like you say, like that phrase "Arc of Infinity," it sounds big, it sounds important, it sounds like oh yeah, this is going to be something that surely there's going to be further explanation of, and I. I came up empty-handed, so I didn't know if I wasn't looking in the right places or if I was interpreting what I read wrong. But no, it's not it's at just all. it's a name, and that's it. It's incredibly evocative, isn't it? It is. It's just a beautiful is, phrase. I, I agree. I th- I actually agree. I think it's a great title. I know it's pretentious as fuck. Of course it is. The <laughs> Ark of Infinity. Oh my god, how pretentious! But like, I think it's a. It is quite captivating in a way. That's an interesting turn of phrase. And you can sort of deduce what it is from the context of the of both the book, I think, and the, and the TV show, which is to say it's something which is produced by an unusual star, which Omega is using to shield himself. That's it. I mean, it's not amazing it's not some great kind of cosmic gotadamarung or whatever you know we'll, we'll wait until we get to terminus for that but you know oh. uh, it has it has some kind of like the, the phrase has a resonance to it i suppose um that entirely belies the banal version of which is essentially shields up captain um but you know it's kind of there i don't know i don't love it but i, I think it's i love the expression i think it's a nice expression which ought to have so so much more behind it i mean ironically uh, the arc of infinity is short and it ends towards triteness what <laughs> <laughs> oh come on that wasn't that bad oh no, that I, was I didn't good. understand that was really good <laughs> <laughs> it's a reference okay okay I... you could also edit that out and replace it with the arc of infinity is short, and it bends towards boredom. Oh, <laughs> well, that is true. That is very true. This whole season has titles that are just interesting and weird and evocative, and sometimes the story will justify the title. I'm thinking specifically about uh, Snake Dance and Enlightenment, both of which are stories that have really great titles, and the stories themselves are pretty good and then you get things like terminus where you think oh that could be interesting except it also sounds like you know a bus station if only it was that interesting yeah exactly even the title like the king's demons makes you think "Ooh, this sounds interesting and mm, 
So, yeah, I've given away everything I'm going to say about all the stories for the rest of the season. So if you've been watching, if you've been listening to the podcast all this time up to this point, you can skip the next eight episodes. Goodbye, everybody. Yeah. Sorry. Arc of Infinity, though, you're right. Beautiful title. Shite story. (laughs) Similarly, I wasn't sure if the doctor was being executed or humanely euthanized and... The council didn't seem to be sure either. No. If they were uh, humanely putting him down for the good of all so the doctor wouldn't become this portal and this link. Mm -hmm. Or if they thought he had done something treasonous and they were sort of working around their death penalty moratorium. But that's not a death penalty. It's just, you know, it's a death warrant. It's totally different. Mm -hmm. Um, They went back and forth, it felt like, but I did not care enough to go back and check. And it also is one of those instances where you have yet another Castellan on Gallifrey who is just kind of in it for the ambition and is trying to make a a public case and thinks the worst of the Doctor. And yeah, you're right. That ambiguity is there because of that. It's sort of like Starfleet's recurring problem with evil admirals. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. And for that matter, even this whole business of we've long gotten rid of the death penalty on Gallifrey, bitch, you had it in The Deadly Assassin. You were going to execute the doctor the last, uh, well, time before last that he came to Gallifrey. So don't go pretending you haven't been doing executions. No, you probably don't have executions for anybody else on Gallifrey. But whenever the doctor comes home, it's like, oh, let's dust off the statutes because it's time to try to execute the doctor again. <laughs> They're just jealous. They don't have legal executions. They have them. <laughs> yeah. They just don't call them that on the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, vaporization. I think it was called the, the last time. But mm. they, yeah, it, it's not clear. You're absolutely right. And it's just yet another point of stupidity and a really, really, yeah. Another point of stupidity. How did the doctor know he was going to be okay? That he wasn't actually going to get killed? Thank you. I didn't get that either. <laughs> Yeah, he just had this faith in the Time Lords, which is so misplaced and so out of character for the Doctor to have any faith that what they're doing is the correct thing. Unless he's just really into the whole idea of self-sacrifice and thinks, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to die, but hey. It's like, yeah, you're right. There's just no understanding of that whatsoever. Or uh, maybe he's realizing that since Omega hasn't come across into our world yet, that whoever the traitor is is going to play for time. But even that is like, he's really pushing it. That's a shot in the dark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People make so many leaps in the story that don't either don't pan out or they do pan out, but only because the plot allows them to pan out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because otherwise they wouldn't. Yeah, they have to. Otherwise the story wouldn't have legs when it barely has those. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's kind of going along. It's a baby giraffe. It's it's a big swing for Omega to think that the Doctor gives enough of a shit about Tegan that her vague torture might motivate him into doing something or not doing something. You know this really annoying woman you used to hang out with? Well, I've kind of poked her a bit with a stick. Would you maybe leave me alone now, please? It's like, yeah, that's a big swing, Omega. 
Oh, man. Yeah. And the doctor saying, no, she's back on Earth. Besides, look at her. She doesn't dress like that. And her hair is not like that. God, where's the that purple? That would have been my very first thing. Yeah, where's the purple? <laughs> where's the curly hair? Did I miss a story where Tegan gets fired from the airline? You missed a story where they finally get back to Earth and they encounter the Master after taking the Concord down a uh, time vector thingy. And apparently she lost her job with the airlines because she didn't report, which is understandable. Hmm. But yeah, that was in the last story. Because she didn't report the master trying to destroy no, the world. No, she didn't report for work. Yeah. <laughs> oh. The, the losing the job seems to have happened between stories. She gets yes. back to yeah, Earth in the last story, and then this story, she doesn't have a job. <laughs> I just like this is a new level of pettiness for the master that he's going to go disrupt the, <laughs> the companion's means of income. <laughs> None of these companions will ever draw a pension again. Also, I think it's an unspeakably generous description of time flight as a story. I have a question. I, I just have lots of questions. Sorry. Why... All the people they could choose to have Omega become a copy of, did they choose the doctor? <laughs> the meddling doctor that foils everyone's plans every time he can. Why? <laughs> this is why I assumed it was the master or someone else who specifically hates the doctor, because I assumed the doctor would be somehow destroyed in the process or consumed or superseded. Omega is probably doing it out of revenge. I mean, it makes perfect sense for him to do so. Except you're right. Hedden is the one that makes that decision, not Omega. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it's coincidence. It's just a coincidence that it's the Doctor. I mean, it's a big fucking coincidence, but that's all it is. That's the whole thing. Is that like, Omega said it says, had to be him, "Oh, it, he was who is the it? Perfect choice. Oh, it's him. Oh, uh, great. Some guy I met ten years ago. Great. That's it." It's, it's so weak. And it, that's so fundamentally the problem with Ark of Infinity. Like, it takes nothing to have a better line. They were genetically compatible or they were in the right place at the right time or like any single line could solve that. And like Johnny Byrne didn't do it. Terrence Dix didn't do it. We're certainly not going to. So yeah, it's just, it's so poor. And yet it's so easy yeah. to fix. And that's everything about Ark of Infinity. Well, there was a tease I thought that it would be revealed why the Doctor was selected, but then it wasn't. Oh, I, mean, I admire bless, you, Dalton, for having so many questions, that. because I was so uninterested that I didn't... I mean, the, li the line that Hedden says is literally, it has not been easy because of time, present location, personality. For these and other reasons, not, not explored, it must be the Doctor. <laughs> it could have been... Anybody that that would not have meddled, that would not have fucked this up, like they could have got some nobody that was in the Matrix that isn't going to interfere, have Omega into his form here and be fine. Mm -hmm. Even the revenge angle would have been more satisfactory. I would have been perfectly fine with Omega saying, if we need a Time Lord, I want it to be the Doctor because I want that bitch to pay yeah. for what all three of him did to me last time. Yeah. I would much prefer that. Yeah. And it would have been easy to have that in there. Yeah. But as we've said, <laughs> nobody cares. So are we suggesting that Ark of Infinity starring Chancellor Flavia might have been a better run than this one? <laughs> 
possibly. For some reason, Russell T. Davis loves Chancellor Flavia, so... Yeah, we haven't even mentioned her, but then she's kind of a non-entity here. I'd much rather discuss her when we get to Five Doctors. Oh, man. Oh, Lord. I mean, because somehow having it be someone else that this happens to and having the doctor be recalled to help, there's there's all kinds of ways that you could rearrange this to make a little more sense and to make it, but it seems very haphazard and thrown together and just like pulling ideas out of a hat and slapping it and being like, okay, that's the story. <laughs> I think you went from a pulling a rabbit out of the hat metaphor to a <laughs> mm-hmm. attending a birth and slapping the baby metaphor was very funny. Yes. <laughs> pulling the rabbit out of the hat and slapping it on the backside. It's hard on the rabbit. <laughs> Well, it is a third rewrite, so that makes sense. I think at this point, it was haphazard. They were just like, we got to get this before the cameras. Mm -hmm. Luckily, they did Snake Dance first and then did this one. But we have to do it before Peter Davison has to go off to his sitcom again for three months. My God. So, yeah. (sighs) Anything else we want to say before we go to Goodreads? Dear God, make it stop. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Gigi. You volunteered. Yeah, I know, I know. I, it, this is this is purely like self-sacrifice at this stage, but still. Well, you shouldn't have revealed that because there was a lot of sympathy for you before we knew you were a volunteer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I've ruined the drama of my own situation like some weird alien on a bridge in another city. <laughs> with, with your first apartment just in the background, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's over there. It's over there. Oh, well, I'll just die? Maybe? That's fine. (laughs) So, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.30. I don't know why. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives it two stars and says, like many of the Fifth Doctor stories in the target range, this is one that I simply skipped in my earlier collecting years and never got around to reading. Listening to the audio version, I can see why. Arc of Infinity is a solid example of Terrence Dix taking the shooting script and adapting it for the printed page with ease and professionalism. But for a story that's a sequel to one that Dix himself worked on during his tenure as script editor, it feels a bit wanting and thin at times. Just at times. The story goes to great lengths to keep the identity of various villains secret during its four-episode runtime and translate it to the printed page. It feels like there's a lot of treading water taking place, from the Doctor's being almost taken over by Omega in Episode 1 until Omega is dispatched in Episode 4. In between, there's some running up and down corridors and later along the streets of Amsterdam. Dix is able to consolidate much of the running around via his prose, but somehow it makes the story feel thinner than it did on screen. 
I couldn't help but find myself wishing for the dicks who gave us the Auton invasion <laughs> or even the three doctors to fill in some gaps here. Well, I know well, I, I keep wishing for the dicks to fill in the gaps myself. And to give us some <laughs> other reason, Omega is still lurking about other than, well, we wanted to bring him back for the 20th anniversary. <laughs> All that said, the saving grace for the audiobook is the performance by Jeffrey Beavers. As I've said before, Beavers could read a takeout menu and hit the right notes of Menace for a Doctor Who villain, and that's certainly the case here. Beavers does his best with the material he's given, elevating it a bit and making the entire experience a bit more enjoyable. By the way, um, I find it interesting that they got Jeffrey Beavers rather than Ian Collier to read the audiobook, though isn't Ian Collier dead now? Oh uh, yeah, he is Maybe dead that's now. It. Oh, that's probably why they didn't get him to do the audiobook. That would have been difficult. It, it does affect his performance. Who is Jeffrey Beavers? Jeffrey Beavers played the master in Keeper of Trocken. Okay. But, yeah. Okay. Also in a Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 2.5 stars, which he then runs up to 3 because, quote, it's Uncle Terry, unquote. And says, when I watch this story now, it's painfully obvious that the Time Lord conspiring with Omega is Hedden. That might be, however, because I already know it, uh, that it is, and recognize Michael Guff's voice. I can't remember if it was so obvious when I watched it 40 years ago. In the book, of course, those clandestine scenes with Omega and Hedden really are clandestine, though the emphasis on Hedden being the Doctor's only friend on the High Council does tend to strongly suggest a red herring. In the book, the Ergon is described as a giant walking lizard. On screen, it looks like an almost comatose big bird after having been plucked alive. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Given all these improvements, I ought to be giving this a high score, but sadly I found it to be pedestrian. Perhaps that's because it's a very simple story that I know well and I found it difficult to engage with it, or perhaps it was the title that was too boring and it should have been called The Maxwell Show. There was one thing that has bugged me about all of Bruce's appearances after his debut. It has been observed that the Doctor's, and more especially the Master's, lifestyles have led them to using up regenerations more quickly than your average run-of-the-mill stay-at-home Time Lord. Yet when we've seen them together, we've seen three Barusas to two Doctors. President of Gallifrey must be one hell of a stressful job. Actually, three bruises, I think. And finally, David Layton gives it a single star and says, Ark of Infinity was one of the least of the Davison era episodes. Johnny Byrne, who had written a cracking good story in Keeper of Trocken, eh, here comes up with a very drab story. Much of this is down to extremely vague science and not much of a grasp of the backstory. In fact, it feels as if the script were quite hastily written, with some ad hoc, off-the-cuff explanations thrown in. Just what is the Ark of Infinity? How does it shift? Why does it shift matter? A matter-antimatter explosion would certainly be worrisome, but not of the universe-ending proportions it's made out to be. Near the end, we also get the dreary scenes of the side character sideline to watch the Doctor do his magic. They fret and worry, then all go, yay, when he succeeds. <laughs> Terrence Dix does his usual job of reproducing the script with minimum amounts of dressing up. The storytelling is a bit clumsy at first, but once he gets into it, the Dick's manner of racing along and not giving the reader time to think comes through. So while the book is a very truthful the original episode, not much more is learned from reading this. The many problems of the script remain. Boy, howdy. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? Well... I gave Time Flight 2, and I like this less than Time Flight. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to give this 
a one star because I just have so many questions. I have so many questions with everything going on with this thing. And I didn't care for time flight and I care even less for this. So one star. Oof. Goodness. Allison? Well, those reviews you read uh, were significantly more engaging than the assigned homework. (laughs) I'm going to go higher than Dalton. I'm going to go 1.5. It was fine. We've read so much worse. It wasn't actively offensive. It was just kind of meh, meh. Okay. That makes sense. Nah, nah, I take that back. It just, it hurts my heart. Uh, One. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my students would hate me if I did something like that to them. Uh, GG? Well, I'm, because I'm a windswept and interesting international man of mystery, I'm going to actually answer you in Dutch. For my, het is een twee so slecht. Niks. Absolute klodzak. Nooit goed. And that is all. That is it. Geen meer. All right. Brief translation. Two stars. Yeah, it's absolutely so boring. Nobody cares. It's not interesting. Please, let's move on with our lives. I actually understood most of that. That's disturbing. And I have to agree. I have to agree. I'll give it a two, mainly because of the two books, I actually hate Time Flight more than this one. Basically because in Time Flight, we had a writer adapting his own story and not caring, which I think is a much more criminal act when it comes to novelizing (laughs) than someone like Terrence Dix not caring about someone else's shitty script. Terrence Dix, when he does care about a script, even a shitty one, is able to rehabilitate it. Here, he doesn't really care. He's doing his best, or rather he's not doing his best, and I think that's half the problem. It is encapsulating what the story gives us. It's still flat on the page, though, and so I'm going to have to give this one a two as well. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss another Terrence Dix contribution when we talk about the novelization of Snake Dance. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. JG, where do we find your podcast? Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the usual places. We are Talking Trek to you, uh, and we'd love some more listeners. So, uh, yeah, please beam on down. We certainly will. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Doctor Who Podcast Network.